Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, lessons, leadership therein. And we tend to like to do that in the spaces of music, of comedy, of sports, books, pastors, the like, and uh, testimonies, as I said, are a huge part of that. And today we have a great testimony. All testimonies are great, but we tend to say some seem to have this like great come to Jesus craziness was happening. And in the life of Greg Steer, I would say it's easy to say some craziness was happening. Greg and I got connected through mutual friend, Jesse Jackson, who writes for church leaders and uh, as I said before we got on air, we had a phone call recently where we talked for, I don't know, a half hour, 40 minutes, and it felt like we should hit record and let the podcast go from from there. So welcome, Greg, Mr. Dare to Share. Hey, Jeff. So glad to be uh, part of the show. I, I love the title. Pinkleton Pull Aside. So here's- I mean, it, fun- sounds, it sounds like a dance move. <laughs> you know, let's it'll bust out the- it's like a country western. Let's try that Pinkleton pull aside. Go. You know, I don't know. You know, I've had some funny. I like it. I've had some funny things as far as what people said. One of our guests, and I forgot who it was. Who it was? I think it was like within the first fifteen episodes, they thought it was poolside, and they were expecting us to like either they're coming on Zoom, and I'm hanging out yeah. at a swimming pool, or we were supposed to meet at a swimming pool, which takes on a whole lot of different tones, but uh, it's actually a play to my uh, old youth ministry days, which that's where, that's where you live, so you would love this. And they said that when I would be with a group of kids, they would see me take like a kid off to the side, and they said yeah. he's, he's getting the Pinkleton pull aside, which meant maybe some tough love or some real gospel penetration was getting ready to happen, and they're like, ooh, uh, so-and-so just got a pull aside. So I love it. It also sounds like a wrestling move. Well, I'm a. He just executed the Pinkleton pull aside. Well, if you know the deep rooted stuff in my heart, I'm a bit of a closet or not so closet WWE, former NWA, WCW, now AEW wrestling fan. So you really got me on that one. I, I could roll with that. There you go. Love it. Let's uh, call Triple H or somebody in the wrestling world, and we'll we'll see if they'll let somebody's finishing move be the Pinkleton pull aside for no reason because I have no wrestling ability whatsoever. But maybe you and I can figure something out there. There you go. There you go. What about what about that, Greg? We'll get into your story here in a little bit, but you know, with your background, you know, growing up in Denver and some hardcore alleyway kind of stuff. I mean, you're a talker. You could probably be hired off by the WWE to be like a wrestling manager <laughs> or something like that. What do you think? No, yeah, maybe a manager. You know, my family, my family could have been in the ring, except for they wouldn't be holding back. What I tell people is I, I come from a family filled with mm-hmm. bodybuilding, tobacco chewing, and beer drinking thugs. And that's just the women. And uh, I love that my one. family was tough. Three of my uncles were competitive bodybuilders. The fourth one was a bouncer at the toughest bar in Denver. Fifth one was a gold gloves boxer, judo champion, war hero. 
and uh, my mom was the only girl in the group, and they were all afraid of her. And <laughs> I was like young, I was like young Sheldon in the hood. I was a terrified, nerdy little kid uh, that carried a dictionary, that ran home from school every day because I was getting chased by you know. Uh, and we lived in a gang-infested part of a city, and my family was a gang. They were my family was renowned for their violence. They were known by the Denver Mafia as uh, the nickname of my uncles was the Crazy Brothers. That's what the Mafia called my uncles. So when the Mafia thinks your family's dysfunctional, yeah, it's not good. That's <laughs> it's true. Bad. And I was terrified. I was just a scared kid. So if you get your family was in wrestling to use the old school eighties, nineties terminology, they probably would have been using a lot of foreign objects. Wouldn't you say? Oh yeah. Yep. You know, a lot of times preachers exaggerate and then people meet my family and they're like, Oh, okay. You're not exaggerating. This is not a, this is not a joke. This is not made up. This is not preacher hyperbole. My family was one of a kind. I've never met anybody even close to my uncles. And my mom, my mom was, I mean, she was a street fighter, like a serious street fighter. One of my most vivid memories, and it's in, in the book, was when I was five years old, a guy my mom had married pulled up in a car and he'd been gone for months. We had no idea. He just left us, just left, took his stuff and left and abandoned us. And I yelled inside, mommy, mommy, one of my daddies is here. And she's smoking a cigarette, doing the dishes starts cursing like a sailor, grabs a baseball bat, runs out. He's sitting in the car, shatters his front windshield. She goes, get out. I'm just a girl. Takes off his side mirror, takes out his headlights, starts doing body damage. And she's taunting him. Get out. Get out. Come on. You could take me. And, you know, I'm traumatized, yet somehow proud of her. I'm like, you go, mom, because she's just wailing on this car. And then he made a tactical mistake. It's almost like you can see that thought bubble. Should I stay or should I go? Mm -hmm. He got out of the car and she you know she's got five bodybuilding street fighting brothers that were all afraid of her she beat him like bloody and i'll never forget her walking back up he drove off she got this broken bloodied splintered bat, bat. i'm thinking three things number one i will never disobey my mommy again mm -hmm. right because i just witnessed this and i'm five i'm gonna go make my bed right now number two uh, how did the cigarette stay in her mouth the whole time, which <laughs> exactly. I thought was pretty coordinated. And three, why is my mom so angry? And there was a rage. And I found out years later, it was a shame-fueled rage my mom had that dominated her her life. So it was just, yeah, it was. it's a crazy story full of twists and turns and a lot of blood and bruises and you know, I joke about it now, but it actually it very traumatizing to me as a kid. Well, and you, you talk about that in that book. I mean, that story was one of the things I was going to kind of touch base on a little bit and we'll unpack that in a little bit. And it sounds to me like things you say, like you said, there can be a, a habit of let's expand the story and kind of take it to another level. It almost sounds like my guess is if I were to meet some of your family, you probably can't do it justice enough. And again, there's a la the Bible it, when it talks about there's enough stories that, uh, you know, there's not enough pages and books in the world to speak to all Jesus did. That's probably true of your family a little bit. There's other books that could have been written. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the book that I wrote is 22 chapters. The first 21 chapters happened before I turned 16. So most of it's just about growing up in this family. And I couldn't, I couldn't put it all in. Yeah. 
Some for legal reasons. <laughs> a, la, a la Greg Laurie. I mean, do you, th- I mean, your, your voice gets more heard, right, lands in the right people's laps. I mean, do you think there's a movie that could be made? I mean, I, I mean, I watched like the, the Tinder bar, you know, on Netflix. I'm like, my family, those guys are just a bunch of guys in Boston talking tough. Like I'm like, my family was my family plot. I mean, I, we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't have to change anything. Yeah. I mean, it literally would be a, it'd be a great movie and it's, and it's true. And it's, it really, ultimately it's, it's a story about the power of the gospel that changed everything. Mm-hmm. And so it's a story of redemption and transformation, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. And yeah, I think, I think it would be a powerful movie. Well, and I think you're one of those guys that, you know, and scripture talks about this, the more you understand how much you've been forgiven and what you've experienced and tasted that's not of the Lord, I'm sure that is a lot of what fuels your passion in general for the gospel, for Jesus to be made known versus if you would have had a much more simplified, nice knit, put together family. And, oh, by the way, I need Jesus too. You know, I mean, have you thought much about that, how much the life you've lived has fueled what is in you inside of you for the gospel? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, matter of fact, there was a, a reporter from a very liberal newspaper, Westward uh, magazine, which is up and down the Rocky mountain region, big, you know, one of those free newspapers that, that they give away in every restaurant or whatever. They sent a reporter to kind of do an expose of Dare to Share years ago. And uh, they interviewed my family. They went on tour with us at Dare to Share. They did all this stuff. And they said, you know, before we go to print, we just, our editors are having a hard time believing you never went through a time of rebellion. I'm like, did you not hear my story? <laughs> my, whole, my whole family, my, my whole life has been a life of rebellion against what I saw my family experience. Mm-hmm. Like my mom was a partier. I was a result of the party. I never knew my biological father, right? I was a one night stand. My family was violent. I saw the ugly side of that growing up every day. And once I came to Christ, I rebelled against that. Why would you go back? Yeah. Why would you go back to that stuff? So I never went through a time since the time I got saved when I was eight years old, where I said, oh, I'm just going to go off and live for myself. And, you know. And I do, I talk to a lot of people, you know, talk about church hurt and all the pain and abuse. And I, you know, empathize with that. I, you know, I was a legal, pretty legalistic church that reached my whole family. I experienced a lot of church hurt. I saw a lot of abuse. I saw a lot of, you know, just crazy stuff growing up. But why would you rebel against the one? Why would you progress out of, away from Christ? That's not progression. That's regression. That's like, Mm -hmm. that's recession, you know? And I'm like, man, it's Jesus that changed everything. And he's been the one, like that one light that's always out there and just running toward him. And I, I will never stop. I can't, I couldn't, I cannot comprehend not serving Christ yeah. and not pursuing him with all my heart because of who he is and what he's done. Yeah. Change my family, change me. So one of my favorite skits on SNL over the last several years is a it's a like a thanksgiving meal where they start talking and you know people are different different political beliefs and all this stuff and as things start getting crazy and they start getting into all this and you could tell people are ready to just start going crazy this little girl walks over to the the boom box and hits the button and it's it's adele's hello 
and then everybody starts kind of getting up. I mean, if you haven't watched it, Greg, you got to go to YouTube and type in. I've seen that. One. Oh, I've seen that one. It's hilarious. Yeah. So, is there a sense like your family, even now coming together, especially the people that are your age and older? Like, where has uh, a lot of times when people come to Christ, their family comes to Christ, but it's like them, their spouse, their kids. What What is the dynamics like now if your family were to have a family reunion as far as people following Jesus, people still in that way of life who have not, have continued a rebellion against God because that's all they know? What are What are those dynamics like? Well, I mean, it's it's like B.C. and A.D. in my family. I mean, before Christ and after Christ. You know, we, that's the stories. Like my Uncle Jack. I went to be with the Lord a few years back, but I mean, it, all of his stories were like before Christ was like, so I grabbed that guy and I, I knocked his teeth out, you know? And then after Christ was so I grabbed that guy and I gave him a pocket new Testament, you know? And so <laughs> it's just the, the whole conversation changed. I mean, my uncle Jack, when he came to Christ, I mean, he spent a lot of his adult life in jail for violence. He once choked two cops out at the same time. How do you oh. do that? Because he had a fully developed philosophy of choking. He used to tell me, when you choke a dude, just don't grab his neck. Grab his windpipe. Just grab it and cut it off. And he, that's what he did with two cops and choked them out. And, you know, went to jail. I mean, his life was in a downward spiral. And then this hillbilly preacher who planted a church in the suburbs of Denver, this hillbilly preacher nicknamed Yankee for whatever reason, on a dare, went to my Uncle Jack's house shared the gospel with him. He said, I'm here on a dare from Bob Daly to tell you about Jesus. He goes, well, I don't know Jesus. I know Bob will give you five minutes. Explained wow. the gospel, not religion. You know, if he'd have told him, hey, if you, if you want to go to heaven, you got to stop your drinking, stop your smoking, stop all this, stop your violence. He would have just given him the middle finger. Mm. But he said, listen, you're a sinner. You can't stop sinning. You come with all your sin to Christ because he died in your place for your sin and he rose from the dead. And he says, if you simply put your faith in him and trust in him, you'll be born again and he'll change you from the inside out. He'll give you eternal life. He'll change everything. And he said to my uncle Jack, does that make sense? And my uncle Jack said, hell yeah. That was a sinner's <laughs> prayer was hell yeah. <laughs> I think God will honor that. <laughs> And let me tell you, God did honor it because he started consuming scripture. Jack brought 250 people out to Yankees church in one month. Wow. Bodybuilders, street fighters, gang members. I mean, he told everybody. He walked into a Mormon church on a Sunday morning, asked where the newcomer Sunday school class was, went there, laid out the gospel. Wow. Gave an invitation and 18 of the 25 new Mormons left. Indicated faith in Christ. Boom, boom, boom. And so when Jack came to Christ, then it was just the dominoes. So the conversation just totally changed. You know, it was no longer about, you know, just about violence. It was about against others, about violence against the kingdom of darkness. They took all that adrenaline they used to get in street fights and used it to advance the mm. gospel. So like if you guys get together, you know, a park or state park or a lodge somewhere, whatever, it's 50 to 100 of you there. Are most of those people before you, peers of yours younger than you, are most of those people uh, connected to your family walking with the Lord now? I would say those, uh, most of those my age and up, yes, are are walking with the Lord. Some of the some of the kids, grandkids, you know, still figuring through out some of the struggles and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, they get the, they get the influence because they're hearing it all the time. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. So Steve Harvey could have an episode of Family Feud and put like the the people walking with Jesus from your family on one side against those that are not, and that'd make for some great yeah. TV, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I mean, three of my five uncles have passed away, so I have two surviving uncles now, and um, you know, I mean, they're aging out. They're you know getting getting older. I just lost the, my uncle Tommy this last summer, hmm. but uh, yeah, Jesus, he changed he changed everything in my family, and it's. You know, people underestimate the power of the gospel, that simple message mm-hmm. to change everything. You know, people are talking about politics and how do we change this and culture. And I'm like, you know, Thoreau said, for every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, one strikes at the root. Mm. So the only thing that can strike at yeah. the root of evil is Jesus Christ himself. And so we need to preach the gospel out loud with words to everyone we can. We need to live the gospel, but we need to share it out loud with words every chance we get. So what do you say to people, you know, you get to go around with Dare to Share and you have over the years, and we're going to hit on a little bit of an event you got coming up November 11th with, you know, almost 70 countries, 1,800 satellite places where this is going to be seen. Obviously, in a day and age we live in, people have brokenness in their family like crazy. So you had a mom, when you tell that story in your book, she said to you, I don't want you ended up being like a bum like me. And she kept referring to herself as a bum. You said, you know, your dad, one night stand, never met your dad, no relationship with him. You know, most people probably don't experience that kind of challenge out of the gate with, with a mom and a dad. How difficult was that to overcome? You talk about identity and wrestling without being a key thing in your life. And then how do you transfer that to speak to people today in a similar place as you with parents, but also in a place where mom and dad are together and they're married and everything looks great. And, you know, that identity can struggle be just, can be just as significant. So take your own experience, speak to it in today's language to people today, but also in a way that, you know, some people's parents are together and yet they're still going to wrestle with identity. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, not having a dad, I mean, you know, I found out when I was 12 years old, the story, my, cause my, my brother, his last name's Steer, my last name's Steer, but mom would always call him George Steer, our dad, the one I thought was my dad. She would call him Doug's dad. And whenever he called to talk to uh, us, I would say, hello. And he's like, put your brother on. He never wanted to talk to me. Hmm. So I, when I was 12, I went in and told my mom, I go, hey, what? why does he never want to talk to me if he's my dad? And why do you always call him Doug's dad? And, you know, she's like, all right, sit down. So she, you know, broke it to me that I had, you know, she met my, my father at a party and then she got pregnant and he left town. He was in the army. He got transferred 2000 miles away. And my grandma sent me down and she said, not only did that happen, but your mom, as soon as she got pregnant, she didn't want us to know your grandpa and I, she got in a car, drove to Boston to abort you it was before Roe v. Wade and stayed with your uncle Tommy and Aunt Carol who were believers by now and they actually talked her out of it Mm. so after a couple months she came back and she would look at me and oftentimes just began crying and I didn't know why this is your mom or your grandmother I'm like this this is my mom you know and then and then I get saved, and then I go to Yankees Church. I, I get equipped to share the gospel when I'm like 11, 12 years old. First person in my heart is my mom, so I start sharing Christ with her. 
And she would say, you don't know the things I've done wrong. Well, I knew them all because my grandma told me everything, but I never let her know that I knew. So I just kept sharing the gospel, kept sharing the gospel. So for me, you know, to get back to kind of my story, my identity, you know, I am raised in what is called now toxic masculinity, right? The, the textbook, mm-hmm. <laughs> like my family, it was, it was, you know, shaking the, the glass with the ice in it to, you know, have all the women come refill and except for my mom, she wouldn't do it. Um, the, the body, the street fighting, the machismo, I was not like that at all. And so I struggled with, I struggled with that, you know, and not having a dad, not anybody taking me out hunting. I had a grandpa that did his best to kind of pour into me, but yeah, it was, it was rough being in this family. And I just wasn't a body, you know, like my cousins were bodybuilders. I mean, it was felt like everybody, but me. And so I struggled with that. What was the words you were hearing Holy spirit wise to affirm who you were as a man and to affirm Christ in you, the hope of glory? Well, I would say it didn't start with the words of the Holy spirit. It started with the words of my uncle Dave. We're at a Christmas party. Yeah. And everybody's there celebrating, open. I'm six years old. They're opening presents. All my family, I've got a huge family where my, you know, grandparents are about to eat. He goes, hey, before we go to lunch, I got one more present for little Greg. Well, no, but I was in the corner. I was a quiet kid. Everybody's looking at me. I've never been called out like that in my family. I'm like, what? So I walk over, man, gives me this present. And I'm like, wow. And everybody's like, open it up. So I open it up and it's a girl's doll. And I thought it was a mistake. I was like, it's a girl's doll. I thought maybe you just got to mix it up with somebody else's. He goes, yeah, I got it for you. And I looked at him and he's like, yeah, I figured you don't have a dad. So you'd like to play with dolls like a little girl. I knew my whole family's watching, you know? Yeah. That doesn't, that penetrated so hard when I read that in the book. I got, I got mad when I shoved it in his stomach. I go, I ain't no girl. And I walked back to my corner and all my family were like, Oh, you see the temper on him. Uh, Maybe he's one of us after all. Oh, you know, they had never seen me angry. Well, that began. I, th- I pinpoint that moment as the moment I began to search. I took my little red King James Bible and a flashlight. And I'd hide underneath the kitchen sink because that's the only place that was quiet in the house. And I would just scour. And I couldn't really understand the King James, you know, I mean, I'm, but I knew the answers were there. And two years later, I heard the gospel clearly for the first time. And I put my faith in Christ. And for me, it was like, all of a sudden, I knew who I was. And my ma, who 20 years ago was in hospice, went to be with the Lord. She told me, she said, do you remember, remember what you used to say when you were a kid and other kids from the neighborhood would make fun of you for not having a dad? I go, I don't remember. She said, you used to say, God's my dad. Mm. And I said, ma, I don't remember saying that, but I remember feeling that ever since I put my faith in Christ when I was eight years old. So for me, man, it clicked every, everything, identity, belonging. And then I got involved with this hillbilly preachers, youth ministry and uh, Christian school. And man, he mobilized everybody for evangelism. So I had identity, belonging and purpose. And that's when everything shifted in my life. So how hard is it for you even today I would think on some level to look at people sometimes or often and they straddle the fence with Jesus and they're not going 
both feet in or kind of one foot in, one foot out. I mean, that would have to be frustrating because you people say it sometimes. I've said it about my wife, and I think it's very true of my wife in many ways, but you've got more of a background than she does as far as craziness, destruction, sinful life, whatever. For when people don't go 100% all in, no look back, no hold back, they're in. Because a lot of people, it's much more of a process. Or you dabble for a while, or you you flirt with the gospel, yeah. you flirt with Jesus, and they don't go all in. That's got to be difficult for you to watch. Yeah, and you know, I'm a, I'm a grace guy. So, I mean, I, I preach the gospel simple and clear. You put your faith in Christ, you receive the free gift. It's not about what you do, it's about what Christ has done. And then once you put your faith in Christ, I beg you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Go all in. So I go off, man. I scarface preach. You know, say hello to my little friend. You know, <laughs> serving Christ, mm-hmm. going all in. Like, why would you not be a hundred percent in? Because he was a hundred percent in for us. I mean, he left his throne, the King of Kings, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who holds it together by the word of his power. He, you know, became one of us. He humbled himself to become a servant and become one of us. And he he lived a perfect life among us, and he was slaughtered by his own creation on a cross willingly in our place for our sin and said, it is finished, and the price of sin was paid and offers us eternal life if we simply trust in him. And that same Jesus that died, was buried, rose victorious from the dead, and he invites us in to this free gift of eternal life. And then that eternal life, it doesn't start when you just go to heaven. It starts as soon as you believe. And why would you not, you know, wring the sponge dry of that living water? Why would you not go all in? Why would you not, you know, be a hundred percent, you know, cannonball into this full surrender walk with the Lord? Not that you're going to be perfect. I mean, I mess up all the time, but you just, you know, mess up, fess up and keep moving. Yeah. What a great phrase. Mess Don't up. give up. Mess up and fess up. You know, there's that famous quote by C.S. Lewis about, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That has to resonate in your heart. Greg, big time, whenever you first heard, I'm sure you've heard that quote before. And how do you take that and apply that to your life, to the world, to you sharing the gospel with young people or anybody you come in contact with and not get discouraged that it's much more of a wrestling match for many people? Yeah, you know, I just keep, you know, I think of the radicalized remnant. You know, Elijah thought he was the only one, right? And God says, I... I reserved 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. They're out there. And, and I think that was actually an encouragement to Elijah because a lot of them probably got their resolve to serve the Lord from Elijah's preaching. Mm-hmm. So what I look for are those that are willing to go all in. Like I preach the gospel to everyone, those who put their faith in Christ, amen, welcome aboard, let's begin the process. But I invest in those that are saying, I'm all in, I'm ready to change the world. I'm ready to reach my school for Christ or change my city. Those are I'm going to invest in. I'm not going to invest in the half-hearted ones. Yeah. I'm going to preach to them and love them and challenge them. Come on. But then let's let's go all in. Let's do this thing. Yeah. You know. I love on your one book. Uh, you you've written one six or seven books. 23. 
Like I said, six times seven divided <laughs> or subtract nineteen is twenty three. So we're close. Yeah. <laughs> um, mostly to teenagers, mostly to teenagers and youth leaders, but yeah. Yeah. So the one gospel as your youth ministry, you got to picture this hot pepper, and you talk about spicing up, you know, youth ministry or whatever. And, and we got some questions after a few questions I'm going to ask here in a little bit that really get into that. But staying engaged there with the fatherless side of this, can you imagine a day? And I know sometimes when you do big pie in the sky, it's hard to really imagine. But what do you think it would look like in our homes and in our churches and in the world if if every home had an active, participating, engaged father, knowing what you came oh from? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I toured with Promise Keepers for several years and became a big, big believer in the necessity of men leading the way in their own homes. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of the crime problems we have today in the United States are because men aren't being men. They're not being dads to their kids. They're not setting the pace, they're not showing them how, they're not coaching them. I, I think the key to a successful family is st- starts with the dad. Uh, the key to a successful country starts with fathers. And I really believe that we need to man up and be the leaders of our homes spiritually and relationally. And we need to love our kids. And we need to, you know, the best way that, you know, the best way I, I taught my, my kids to share Christ yeah, how's that? is not by a dare to share, not by dare to share conference. It's by sharing Christ all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've seen me share Christ with, countless servers at restaurants yep. and people on the street and they do it now not because i mean yeah they went to dare to share too but they saw it modeled by you know me and my wife and that's what we got to do we set the pace not just for evangelism for prayer i i want the first thing when growing up the kids came downstairs they saw me with my open bible and my cup of coffee that's that's the first view that's the first thing my kids remember about getting up all through their years. And I, I mean, I don't think that should be out of the norm. I think however we, whatever that means in our worlds, we need to set the pace in scripture, in prayer, in evangelism, in asking for forgiveness. Mm. When we mess up, fess up, man, I, you know, I took one of those classes early on. It was like, if you do these principles, you, you will have godly kids. And I, you know, I got some stuff out of it that was good, but I realized that being a dad and being a parent, it's not bowling. Mm. You don't just follow the lines and get a strike. It's pinball. You are pushing buttons and praying and trying not to tilt, you know, and just saying, God, help me, help me. And, uh, but by his grace, you know, I, I think our, our job as parents is not to can't make your kids serve the Lord. That's a, that you, parents that try to do that. It's like wet soap. You squeeze it too hard. They mm. go flying out flying out. I think our job as parents is to build a lighthouse that is so big and so bright that even if our kids stray out of the harbor, when the storm hits, they they know where home is. Yeah. Man. That's our job. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So we had a retreat recently and the guy that led the retreat talked for a bit about kind of having more of an evangelistic nature in one of the sessions. And he talked about making a list of the people closest to you that you get to see and interact with a decent bit who you want to share Christ with, send them a note or some little thing of encouragement once a week. And he said, do 
I forgot how he, he had four parts to it. And then the one was try to get with one person on a list once a week to meet with them for coffee, for a meal, to do something relationally. And then once a month, share the gospel with somebody on that list. Now, for someone like you, that may seem like that's there's more to be done than that. But I thought, you know what? If the 16 guys who were there would do that, that would radically change our culture. And we'd see more. Hey, it's, yeah. We sum that up. It's a process. Prayer, care, share. You pray for them. You care for them in some tangible way. And you share the gospel out loud with words. And that's we got to say that because it. Yeah. St. Francis of Assisi mm-hmm. was falsely attributed this quote. Preach the gospel if necessary. Use, use words. words. I hate that quote. And by the way, St. Francis never said that. I changed it to preach the gospel. It's necessary. Use words. So we live it. Of course, if you don't live it, nobody's going to take your words seriously, but you also have to give it, you know, like you want to fly in a two winged airplane, not a one winged, right? So you want to live it out and you want to shout it out. You want to share it verbally, but share it with your life. Both of those things are, are super important. I think a lot of times people don't just say, well, I just, I just preach the gospel with my life. I'm like that copping out. Yeah, it totally is. I don't know if you ever saw this. That's like a doctor saying, you know, I'm just going to give you medicine with my life. I was like, well, how about you actually give me the medicine? Yeah. Well, and and walk me through it and have the emotion attached with it and really decipher what this means in layman's term. Yeah. Nobody would ever suggest that for a doctor. No. Did you ever see the video back in, it was probably like early 90s, maybe late 80s. There was a video that felt like it was about 20 years, way too old, even back then with the graphics and the the acting in it was it was kind of off a bit, let's say. But the, the message was really good. It was a it was a little probably 20 or 30 minute piece of a group of kids who rode to school together every day, and there was a car wreck, and they all died. And it's, it shows them supposedly going to, before God, and one of the kids without reservation. Yes, that's it. So you remember that pretty well. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny because years before, so it basically did that they die, step to the left, step to the right, you know, heaven, hell, judgment day. It's for 30 years, 35 years ago, I wrote a drama called Letters from Hell. Mm. And uh, it's what if you got a letter from hell from a friend that died without Christ, what would they write to you? Ouch. Right before they get cast into the flames. As a matter of fact, this year we're doing a, a, a big event. I know we'll talk about it, but we're doing a drama called based on that one is 35 years ago. I wrote it at Glendo Lone Tree Bible Camp in Glendo, Wyoming, but we're doing an updated version of it called FaceTime from hell. Like what if you got a oh. FaceTime message from a friend? We hired professional actresses. It is so intense, wow. but it's what I, I think we need to be intense. I yeah. think we need, and people say, well, that's manipulation. And here's what I say to them. If the reality is more intense than the drama, it is not manipulation. It's a peek behind the curtain. Mm. And I guarantee you the reality of Judgment Day, the Great White Throne, hell, the lake of fire, all of that's going to be way more in, in heaven. It's going to be way more intense that's than a good dramatic word. presentation. Yeah. Man, I'm so glad you said well, that. We need, to, we need to break that stuff. We need to break the doctrines, the great doctrines out to this generation. Yeah. I'm glad you said the title of that vid- video because I couldn't remember it. And as soon as you said without reservation, I remembered it. And, you know, I I, th- I was reading something recently where it, um, I think it was on the Gospel Coalition page. Trevin Wax, who I've gotten to know a little bit, talked about how we basically have taken hell out of preaching. People don't really refer to it. Obviously, we would probably both agree that sin is not talked about enough. But it's like, why would we not talk about hell when Scripture does? Here's the deal. Yeah. Do, do you remember, do you remember, uh, 
you remember Penn and Teller, the video? Oh, that with? I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I know where you're going. Yep. And he, and, yeah. Penn basically just said, um, how much do you hate someone? You know, I had, a, I had, a, I had, a, I had a Gideon try to give me a Bible and he's trying to convert me. And he, uh, how much he goes, you know, I don't get offended as an atheist when that happens because he's trying to save my soul from hell. I don't think we talk enough about hell. Jesus, of the 12 times the word Gehenna is mentioned in the New Testament, 11 are mentioned by Jesus. And people are like, well, was he, he wasn't using scare attacks. They go, yes, he was. Read Luke 16, 19 through 31, Lazarus and the rich man. Scare tactics out of love. Like if I see a little girl running toward traffic, I'm going to yell at yep. her, not because I hate her. It's because I love her. I don't want to see her get hurt. Yeah. And Jesus is making a very clear picture. I'm like, am I the only one here? But every, this, every, the world is pulling a Thelma and Louise off the cliff into the lake of fire. Yeah. And we got to jerk the steering wheel. We got to yell, stop. 100%. Well, and it's, it's always reminded me, I, I, I think there's a lot of things in life that I can, I can take back to the, either the Brady Bunch or Tom and Jerry or maybe Wiley Coyote and all that. And, you know, when you would see Wiley Coyote running and he's going to go off the cliff and Roadrunner was so fast could go down the hill or whatever, you want to say, Wiley Coyote, stop. You're going to get ready to go off this cliff and kabam. And, you know, yeah. So I think you're totally right. And I think we've got, I'm actually speaking to our youth group on Sunday night and I'm thinking about talking about hell. It was kind of, I just got asked to do it and I've kind of been praying it through like, yeah. what do I talk about? But I feel like that's a reality that my wife, sometimes we've had this conversation. She struggles thinking that a Bible believing preaching the gospel church, like we go to, that there could be actually people who don't believe hell is real. And I said, well, it doesn't mean we're not preaching about it. It just means that people want to believe a casual Christianity that says, you know, all dogs go to heaven, all people go to heaven. There's nothing bad. There's nothing doom and gloomy. And it's like, well, that's just not true. That doesn't mean people don't believe what they want to believe, regardless of what they hear, because it's safer for them. It's more comfortable. It doesn't push them out of their comfort zone. There was a great piece I don't know if you saw this, that um, I'm blanking on his name real quick. Um, J.P. Pecluda, he preached at Louis Giglio's church recently, and he talked mm -hmm. about us going going to heaven someday, assuming we know Jesus, and going before Paul and talking about why we didn't share the gospel. Have you seen this clip yet? No. And I'll he, have to watch it. Yeah, he basically talks about he's He says, I've figured out why I think it's the hardest thing people have to overcome and sharing a gospel. He goes, it's not comfortable. He goes, can you imagine going before Paul and talking about all that Paul went through? And he, he plays it out much longer than I'm going to take the time to do. Yeah. But then sooner or later, you know, but Paul's like, yeah, wasn't that crazy how, you know, you got thrown into jail. And he goes, well, Paul, you know, actually, and he goes, yeah, we got whipped and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, Paul, actually. And he goes, what do you mean? Didn't you go through all that I went? And he's like, yeah. well, I, why didn't you share the gospel? He goes, uh, it was uncomfortable. He goes, uncomfortable? You mean like he goes through all the stuff Paul went through? And I mean, he I'm getting goosebumps as I share that story now from J.P. Pecluda sharing it at uh, Passion City. But it's like, yeah, I mean, what are we doing? Raise well, it, start here with me. So you look at look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive what is due according to what, is, what he's done, whether it be good or bad. Verse 11. We miss. Therefore, because of the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Mm. The judgment seat of Christ, the beam of seat of Christ, Paul's like, I'm terrified of that day. Yeah. That Greek word, fear, is phobua in the Greek. And it's the same Greek word used to describe the reaction of the Roman soldiers when the when the angel comes down and flips the stone away at the resurrection and they all have a seizure 
and pass out. So you could read that. Therefore, because of the seizure-inducing, passing out fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So this is the Apostle Paul who was pretty good at sharing the gospel. He was like, I'm terrified of that day. And if Paul was nervous about the day of judgment, oh my goodness. I mean, I think we just think we're going to skip into the presence of God. We're going to give an account as believers. There is a report card. And this whole thing about we'll just throw our our, uh, crowns at the feet of Jesus, that's baloney. Mm. Revelation 4 and 5 talks about the 24 elders that every time the four creatures say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, they take the crowns and lay them before him. But the implication is they pick them back, back up again. We're going to carry our, our rewards with us for eternity. We're going to rule and reign with Christ based on how we perform with whatever he gave us here on earth. We'll all be equally loved. Everybody's going to hear welcome home, but not everybody's going to hear well done, my good and faithful servant. Mm. And I, do, I don't think we speak enough about rewards. And people are like, well, that's not what motivates me. I'm like, well, it should. It should be part of what yeah. motivates you because Jesus said, be motivated by this. Don't be motivated by earthly riches. Be motivated by eternal riches. I don't think we talk enough about judgment, seat of Christ, the great white throne, judgment day, heaven, hell. I think it was Spurgeon who said the key to great preaching is great subjects. And mm. again, a dare to share. We take all those subjects out and we, <laughs> we lay them out to teams in very clear and powerful ways. So we're getting ready to get to your event coming up, but real quick, I want to ask you before we get to that, and then we'll we'll need to have another dialogue because we're gonna we're leaving a lot of stuff out today. But tell us about April twentieth, nineteen ninety nine, and what that day meant to you in your life and in your ministry and life since then. Yeah, I was a pastor at the time, a church planner in Denver, and doing Dare to Share on the side, and I was promoting a Dare to Share event. Whose, our title was When All Hell Breaks Loose. It was on spiritual warfare and evangelism. And the pastor came in and said, you guys may want to stop and pray. There were six other youth leaders. All hell is broken loose at Columbine High School. So we prayed. Well, and then we found out you know, that afternoon and, I mean, the days that followed the carnage that happened on April 20th, 1999, uh, when two shooters came into Columbine High School and killed 12 students, a teacher, and then turned the guns on themselves and that i knew a lot of the kids at columbine high school my wife's a public school teacher in the same district and my life was forever changed because i was like i think i'm going to have to resign from the church and do dare to share full-time what if what if we mobilize teenagers on every campus to share christ mm-hmm. um, across the united states and now around the world and so i resigned uh, a couple months later and have been doing dare to share full-time ever since it was a big deal for me broke my heart. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I read both books, the one about Rachel Scott and the one about Cassie Bernal. And I think, you know, anybody that's, I'm 54. I mean, anybody that's whatever age old enough probably remembers that day. And it's, it's amazing when someone like you is so tied to it on a personal level, doing ministry out there and it forever changed the arc of your life. I mean, clearly God is good. You know, one of the things I like to share when I go speak places is, I give people three options. Which line do you want to choose here? Life is really good. Life is really hard. Or I make number three very generic and you got to guess what I'm going to say. Well, most people can figure it out at some point. Life is really good and life is really hard. That day doesn't change that. And it's pretty interesting that you were so closely tied. God takes your heart, switches it around, changes some things, molds it. And then you give your rest of your life to that. I mean, that's God being honored in a very great way. So let's let's piggyback that. Talk about what's coming up November 11th. 
So November 11th, we're doing Dare to Share Live. So it is a, it's an event and it's uh, evangelism, inspiration, equipment. We do that drama, FaceTime from Mel. We, we do equipping. I have the best youth speakers from across the United States help, helping me do this. Uh, we have it in English and Spanish. So we have two different teams. And uh, November 11th, starting in New Zealand and going around the world, there's going to be uh, teen-led gospel conversations. We have like almost 1,800 sites in 68 countries so far, and it's free. So we've it's not free to us. We've invested hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars into pulling this thing off. But it is high quality, and it's free to youth leaders. Our donors, thank the Lord for donors that, that make this stuff available for free. We give all of our curriculum at Dare to Share away for free, all of our digitized curriculum. We give as much as we possibly can away for free. Dare to Share Live. So it's a day of global youth evangelism. And ask people to pray for that day. And on that day, as teens are out, they'll get trained, equipped, and mobilized to go out to share the gospel. And uh, encourage people to download the Life in Six Words app that they'll be able to see the gospel conversations. There's a map on the app that will light up as they're having those gospel conversations. But if you're a youth leader or a parent of teenagers, get your kids and a group of their friends if you're a youth leader, and you're like, I don't have time. It's too close. Listen, just get five or 10 of your kids together on a Saturday, November 11th, and take them through this. Train them, equip them, and mobilize them. Go to dare2sharelive.org. That's number two, dare2sharelive.org, and just sign up. You'll have access to the videos when they become available, and then there you go. That's what I was going to ask. Could people use this? Will there be the feed available after the fact for people to maybe do it tied into their youth group night? So maybe it wouldn't be yeah. that. Yeah, you can do it anytime you want. Uh, the only thing you'll miss out is the day of global youth evangelism, which sure. is November 11th. But you could do it in February. It's not It's not time sensitive other than this day of global youth evangelism. Yeah. But yeah, just go to dare to share live.org and, and you'll you'll probably want to reuse it. Even if you use it, then you'll probably want to reuse it. For no a, doubt. A retreat or a youth group night. Yeah. Well, we're going to hit pause. There's a lot of other stuff we can get into, but you've been so great. You, I, I want people to know this. You actually moved some stuff around you had today to keep this podcast going and not switch the date on us, which I told you, I'm like, look, you got this big event coming up. Don't worry about dealing with that. And you're going to like, no, I'm going to stay committed to this. I'm just like, who does that? Like nobody. That's unbelievable. So Greg, I look forward to the day we get to meet in person. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff we didn't get to. I didn't get to my fun rapid five questions, but uh, look forward to more. And I, I'm going to be making sure some people I know get access to that beyond Dare to Share Live. Greg, where are other places people can make sure they're keeping up with what you're doing? Yeah, well, and I would say the book's called Unlikely Fighter. It's on Audible and Amazon, Unlikely Fighter by Greg Steer. And you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I'm just Greg Steer, at Greg Steer, S-T-I-E-R. And uh, yeah, and I have a blog, gregsteer.org. So, and Gospelize Your Youth Ministry and 21 other books. I think you might have written one while we were here, right? Did you just, I, I see you taking some notes and you finished a book while we were doing this? They're really small books, but yeah, I got <laughs> <laughs> Well, Greg, I appreciate you. I'm grateful for Jesse Jackson making this thing happen for us. The, the Dayton, Ohio Jesse Jackson, not the other one that's known on a little bit more of a bigger level, but I definitely look forward to more dialogue with me and you. Great, Jeff. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Okay, let's be praying for November 11th. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. 
Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.